Welcome to a special bonus edition of the Aggressive Life. Derek, why is this called an, a, a bonus edition? It's going to come out tomorrow. It's going to come out, so we're going to have two in one week. Yeah. All right. Timely. Uh, very timely. Okay, so it's timely. So, yeah, it's bonus two in one week because we got a lot going on this week in the world. When healthy aggression becomes your filter for life, you begin to see it creeping up everywhere. That's what this podcast is about, to help you see things and do things. Past week, the world has come face to face with the conflict in Ukraine. And amid all the news headlines and push notifications you might have gotten, if you look closely, you'll find some healthy, life-changing aggression. It's in a president with no background in politics. He's refusing the easy trip to safety that was offered, and instead he's choosing to stay and stand with his people. It's the 13 soldiers on Snake Island refusing to back down as the first defense against invasion. It's in people with no military background signing on the dotted line when they're needed the most. It's in the common everyday folks taking care of each other, getting through air raids, sharing food, treating the injured, and standing together. doesn't matter what your politics are. doesn't matter your opinion on sanctions or Russia or left versus right. We can learn from people taking aggressive stances when it seems everything is stacked against them. So today, I'm joined by someone who is going to color in the picture more clearly for all of us. Instead of like just hearing what some news reporter says who might or might not be informed and just going along with whatever the Twitter Tide is telling us to do, you're going to actually talk and hear today from someone who actually knows what the hell he's talking about, who actually has been in the midst of the Ukrainian situation for a long time. His name is Bob Herring. He's the chair of the Cincinnati Kharkiv Sister City Partnership. Bob, did I say it right? Kharkiv? Yes, you did. Kharkiv Sisters City Partnership. I've read that that city a number of times, but I've not actually said it. First time I've said it. He knows Ukraine and the people, and he's going to bring some helpful clarity for all of us. War is an ever-changing phenomenon. And while I'm recording this conversation Thursday morning, March 3rd at 9 a.m., who knows what's going to happen by the time it gets to you? Where That's actually right now. It is right. It's 9.04. And so if something changes when you get this, uh, just know we're going to give you the real stuff as we are right now. Welcome to the Aggressive Life, Bob Herring. Thank you. Good to be here, Brian. Man, this is um, this is really, really good stuff. Good you're here. Nothing good over going on Ukraine. Why don't you give us the true story of what's going on in Ukraine? Because I'm like a lot of people. We just don't know who to believe anymore. What's What's out there just for entertainment? value, what's out there to, I don't know, just fire us up that might not be reflecting stuff that's real. Just as a guy who's, well, let's talk about you first. How do you know anything about Ukraine, Bob? Well, um, when I was principal of an elementary school here in Cincinnati, Nativity School in Pleasant Ridge, there was a delegation visiting from Kharkiv through the Cincinnati Kharkiv Sister City Partnership. The partnership was formed in 1989 when Charlie Lucan, as mayor of Cincinnati, signed an agreement with the mayor of, of Kharkiv to establish the Sister City Partnership. Ukraine became independent in 1991. A delegation followed a couple of years later visiting Cincinnati. And we didn't know anything about Ukraine. Newly independent country, 
didn't know anything about the history, the culture. And so he invited a member of that delegation, Yuri Golb, who was the vice principal of school number three in Kharkiv, to come to Nativity and just tell the kids about their country, his country, newly independent, the culture, the history, their dreams, their hopes. And so he did that. It took three days to visit all the classrooms, kindergarten through grade eight, with age-appropriate information for the kids. During the course of those three days, Yuri and I got to talking about the possibility of a student exchange. Wouldn't it be great if kids from Pleasant Ridge here in Cincinnati could go to Kharkiv and live with families and attend school and just see what life was like in this newly independent country that we knew virtually nothing about? And an opportunity for the kids from Kharkiv to come here to Cincinnati to experience life in America as it is in Cincinnati, and what that was like. And so we did. We did a student exchange, and we set up a partnership with School Number 3 and did a series of student exchanges. So that's when I became um, first involved and first got to know people from Kharkiv. And that continued through the 1990s, the 2000s, um, 2010s. And so um, in the early 2000s, I was asked to be a member. I was asked to join the the Cincinnati-Kharkiv Sister City Partnership Board and become a member there was glad to accept the invitation and got to know lots of people as those delegations from Kharkiv came to Cincinnati. So the background is, long story short, is there are personal friends, there are acquaintances that are living in Kharkiv um, that I've known for, in some cases, 20 years. Um, and so we've been in touch with them through a variety of, of media, you know, some Facebook stuff early on, usually the WhatsApp app is the, is the most frequent one now to get a first-hand account of what they're experiencing. What's the population of Kharkiv? It's about a million and a half. And that puts it as the second largest city in Ukraine? Second largest city in Ukraine. So when you go for a sister city partnership, what you try to do is find a city of similar size and similar interests. So Cincinnati's an inland river city with a strong manufacturing base, lots of educational opportunities, universities, so on, strong arts scene, same thing with Kharkiv. Inland river city, strong manufacturing base, multiple universities in the town and a strong art scene. So the, the match was kind of like between sisters, if you will, or um, that had similar characteristics. So where is Kharkiv right now as far as staring down the face of the barrel of a gun? Are there guns right now, Russians right now in Kharkiv? There are. The missiles have been raining down on the city. The city government building, the equivalent of the city hall, has been destroyed. Um, the schools have been hit. Residential buildings have been hit. People are homeless, and people have died um, un- under these attacks. There is some street-to-street fighting going on in, in Kharkiv, as, as um, we've been informed by the folks that have kept in touch with us. So you've got a regular ongoing dialogue happening with your friends in Kharkiv. We do. And the general timeline, if you will, is that um, they send something over Morning in the morning, Cincinnati time. So they're seven hours ahead of us, so it's the afternoon there. We kind of get an update. Last two days, those reports uh, have been delayed, and there's nothing today. So that's a very – it's a sign that says, wow, if they can't get out the daily update, things must really be tough. So we don't know. You know, are they, are they still alive? Can they, are they trapped in the, in the bomb shelters and the subways and can't get up to the surface, you know, to get a signal? We don't know what's happening, but we do know that um, our contacts are in trouble. Prior to the last two, three weeks, or at least as long as it's come on to the American conscience that Russia is looking to go into Ukraine, it's at least on my mind, it's a relatively recent thing. As you interacted with your friends in the Ukraine, 
did they see this coming six months ago, a year ago, two years ago? I mean, what, what's what, what's the what's the surprise factor for them? Well, it, it's multifaceted in the sense that Ukraine has been at war for eight years since Russia um, supported the separatist elements in the eastern region, the Donbas region. So war with Russia is not new to them, but it was confined to that area, and it really didn't spread. So the people that we know in Kharkiv, their opinion was Putin's not going to invade the country. He just he wants Crimea, which was historically part of Russia, wasn't part of Ukraine until 1950s when Khrushchev carved it off of Russia and gave it to Ukraine. So Crimea, well, kind of okay, maybe. But um, they didn't believe that Putin would go so far as to actually invade the country. And that was up until two days before the invasion. When we talked to him, they'd say it's saber rattling. He's just trying to you know, gain attention. He's not going to be so crazy as to invade the country. But he was, and he did. And when did it, when did it sink in for them that this was real? Like that they're going to actually be dealing with violence. Was there, a, was there a moment when they said, okay, it's not a bluff anymore. It's posturing. It's actually coming. There was when the soldiers crossed the border. Um, it was up, up to that point. They were not sure if it was actually going to happen then. That the buildup of Russian troops in Belarus and on the on the border, Kharkiv is just 25 miles from the Russian border. The buildup of troops there, they thought nothing's going to happen. It's it's bluster. It's it's uh, an attempt to intimidate, to bully us into compliance. Because Ukraine in, in Kharkiv, the majority of the population is ethnically Russian, and their first language is Russian. And so, in spite of that. The folks in Kharkiv look west. They want to be part of the European Union. They want a free and fair elections. They want a parliamentary democracy. They want an, a free market where they can start businesses and, and do all the things that people in free countries can do. They didn't want to be part of Russia and part of that, that type of economy that, uh, that's there. And certainly they didn't want to be governed by Moscow. And so they, they, they valued their independence and thought – Russia would be crazy to, to invade. Are you familiar with the theory that that Vladimir Putin feels like he's on a holy mission to be the representative of Christianity in the world? Are you familiar with this theory? I've heard a little bit about it. not terribly familiar with it. Um, what I've heard more is that he wants to recreate the Russian Empire. You know, and, and Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire from about the— um, you know, late 1700s. Uh, prior to that, it, uh, it was not part of the Russian Empire. So he wants to recreate that, and Ukraine is is a key to that. It's the breadbasket, um, tons of wheat that is grown there and, and exported, lots of manufacturing facilities. He he wants to recreate the Russian Empire. So I haven't heard the religious dimension so much. I'll send it to you, and Dirt. Let's also put it in the notes for the for the podcast. It's it's a I'll give it to you, the footnote, well, footnote. There's not a lot written on this, but I've shared it with some other historians. And they're like, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. The, the basic thing is this, is that Vladimir Putin had a Christian mother and he had a atheist father. He's named, Vladimir is named after one of the heroes in the Russian Orthodox faith, uh, basically one of their saints, and Kiev is the capital city of the old school Russia, which is where Russian Orthodox is, Russian Orthodoxy is. Putin views himself, well, I'll just read you, I'll read you a quote here that he says, this is what he says, okay? This, this is not who he is 
it's it's what he says. Okay, here's what he here's what he says. Because I'm not trying to at all say that he's some sort of Christian idealist. Uh, it, it could be that he is another, in another way deluded about his importance, and he's kind of painting himself as this spiritual figure. Here's what he says one time. He says, we see many of the Euro-Atlantic countries are actually rejecting their roots, including the Christian values that constitute the basis of Western culture. They are denying moral principles and all traditional identities, national, cultural, religious, and even sexual. They're implementing policies that equate large families with same-sex partnerships, belief in God, and with the belief in Satan. And so he talks about Holy Russia and their destiny. He's funded, I, th- I think the thing I saw was 3,000 new Russian Orthodox churches a year. 3,000 a year. Like he's he's funding that and building that. And the theory goes that Kiev is sort of the center point of the religious history of the Russian Orthodox Church and, and his family history. And so that's why it's important to him because it doesn't make, this is just a theory, it just makes sense, right? He, he doesn't, what it doesn't make sense from start to finish on this. He, they've invested in this massive pipeline that Germany is dependent on it for their for their power. They're tied into the global economy. That's all going up in smoke. It just it just doesn't seem rational, right? What I mean, what's your what's your think about about why this could be happening? It just doesn't make sense. Well, it's a good question, Brian. Um, what we don't know is the status of Vladimir Putin's thinking. What's really motivating him? Um, all the sources that I've read said that it, that he's not um, listening to advisors. He has a very, very, very small circle of folks, and he's and there's been speculation that he's maybe kind of lost touch with what's going on, and that this dream of his of recreating the Russian Empire. This dream of his of making Russia the premier uh, power on on the planet, if you will, is really blinded him to the reality of what's happening on the ground. Um, so uh, it's hard to tell what's what's really motivating him. Religion could very well be, but sometimes folks use religion as an excuse. Of course, you know, and under the name of God, we're going to do all kinds of things. That's right. And the last 2000 or more than that years is filled with hundreds of examples of the misuse of the faith, of the religion, of Jesus's command to love your brother, love one another as I have loved you. That's it. It's simple. It's it's really not complicated. Well, invading Ukraine, destroying homes, targeting hospitals, schools, residences, that is not what the Russian Orthodox faith is all about. I would bet a million dollars. I'm not a Russian Orthodox adherent, but I bet they trace their roots back to Jesus, to the gospel. It's not, no. this is not what Jesus wanted right. to have happen. Yeah, just so anyone knows, I am not saying Vladimir Putin walks with God or that he can possibly be on a mission from God. I am saying, though, that we often delude ourselves spiritually, and it could be he's deluding himself spiritually to give him some some justification for doing what he wants in his own political kingdom. I think that's very possible. And we see that in other countries, too. Yeah, the, the role of religion, I, I believe that most of us are very afraid to talk religion. You've got very deep Catholic roots. You're firm in your religion and your perspective. And so you're able to have conversations like this, but very few people are willing to talk about religion 
and open it up because they feel ill-formed. Madeline Albright in her in her autobiography, which she was probably two decades old now, you know, the former Secretary of State, she made a big point of this: is that as America becomes less and less religiously literate, and more and more afraid of religion and spirituality and having the conversation, we're putting ourselves at disadvantage on the world stage because like it or not, people and countries are religious. Whether it's the right religion, the wrong religion, or whether it's practice the right way or the wrong way, that wasn't her point. Her point is if we don't understand the religious and spiritual impulses that everybody has, we're gonna be at a disadvantage on the world stage. And so I just wonder if we're missing something here with Ukraine by missing the spiritual religious component, which of course our modern media is utterly ill-equipped to talk about because <laughs> our modern media would just, pref- would just prefer and assume everyone be agnostic because they just don't want to talk about it. I don't know. If, is there any sort of faith with the folks you know in Kharkiv? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, under when they were part of the Soviet Union up until you know nineteen ninety one when they got their independence, it was officially an atheistic state. Um, my experience has been with the folks that I know there that after Ukraine became independent and it opened up and traveled to Ukraine by folks from the West, whether it was uh, people through the Cincinnati Harkey Sister City Partnership or or businessmen independent of that or or um, missionaries. Um, there has been a turning toward faith among many of the people that I know in Kharkiv, those who were indifferent or did not practice or perhaps were atheistic prior to the opportunity to really hear the message, listen to the message, and gather as a people. Um, now they're doing that. Part of, the, part of what Cincinnati Kharkiv Sister City Partnership did was help restore the Jewish synagogue in Kharkiv. Um, the Jewish community here in Cincinnati contributed to that. There was a restoration of the Catholic Church, the one Catholic church in Kharkiv, and there's the, the building of uh, Baptist uh, Protestant churches in Kharkiv. So there's been a, an increase, my understanding is, in folks attending uh, faith-filled um, services, if you will. Um, so I, th- I think that... that, that um, for that, from that perspective, there's a future for the for the faith in Harkey. But you'd really, you know, Brian, it's not that complicated. All God wants us to do is come home at the end of our time here. He wants He wants us to be home with Him, come home to the Father. And to get there, He said, it's really not that complicated. There's just ten rules. Follow these ten rules, and and we'll be together in eternity. Well, we had a trouble with that, so He said, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it a little easier for you guys. Okay, I'm gonna send my Son. And, and he's, he's going to show you the way. And, and there's just two rules now. Love me and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. And here's some stories, some parables to help you remember that, to help you carry that out. Because people like stories. And still we have a hard time. You know, but it, it's not that complicated. Love God, love your neighbor, and you'll be home with the Father. That's what it's about. And that's what the people in Kharkiv are looking for. And I think people around the world are looking for. Look, Bob, I brought you here to talk Ukraine. I didn't bring you here to bring spiritual truth. <clears throat> I mean, you know, come on. We, we don't want to hear spiritual truth that actually change our life and change our destiny. Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good and strong, man. That's great. What, what, uh, what was the word on the street about President Zelensky before all this happens? Because he's now kind of an icon in America. What does the average Ukrainian or the Average Ukrainian before all this happened, what was their opinion of the president? 
Well, he, he won in a landslide election, but he was an alternative, and they were looking for something different from what they had had before. So here comes this comedian, you know, literally, who says, I'll take a crack at it as being president, and they, they gave him a chance. He was not taken all that seriously by the folks that we know in Kharkiv. You know, can this guy really pull it off? Has he got what it takes to, to lead the nation? Well, it looks like this guy has stepped up. You know, he has provided the leadership. He had an opportunity to, to flee Ukraine, to set up a government in exile. And he said, there's no way I'm leaving the people. There's no way I'm walking away from this. I am here. I am with you and will remain. He said, I don't need a ride. I need ammo. Right. <laughs> Come on. I, that is but one of the most inspiring things I've I've ever heard, especially when it's put against the backdrop of articles that I read a few weeks ago that said, hey, you know, this guy is just not up for the task. His background doesn't uh, doesn't lend itself to this sort of geopolitical conflict. He's in over his head. I mean, that was basically what the media was saying. But it just goes to show you have no idea what somebody's made up until it's crunch time, do you? Exactly. We don't know what we've got inside until we're tested. Man, it's so it's so amazing to see. And I think for our, our listeners to be with us, you don't know how God can use you. You don't know what you're made of until there's a crisis. And this guy is dealing amazingly with this crisis. I feel like he's just like he's calling out the world leaders in a really strong way in which they really need to be called out. Do you agree? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. He has stepped up to meet the challenge. He is the voice of freedom, the voice of uh, democracy, the, the, the voice that the people of Ukraine need to take to the world stage. He's done it. What do you think from your own background, because you're one of the very few people who has been to Ukraine, who has relationships with the people in, in Ukraine, who have an education about Ukraine and about the situation that's deeper and wider than the education that most of us have gotten just in the last few weeks, because you've been there for years now. You've been engaged emotionally, relationally, physically. What, what do you think is the solution to this? Oh, Brian. <laughs> I know. Come on. It's called yeah. the aggressive life. Don't yeah, hold know. back, Bob. No, Come it's, on. It's, it's just a tough question. I don't see a happy ending at this point. I don't see Putin pulling back, um, pulling his troops out. I see him going in all the way. So what that means is more destruction of the cities and the towns and the villages. It means more death. It means more suffering. It means more displaced people as millions flee into Poland and Hungary and Romania. I see him attempting to occupy this country and perhaps set up a puppet government. I see the Ukrainian people that are left absolutely refusing to go along with that. And months, if not years, of guerrilla warfare you know, um, against the puppet government that he will have installed. I, I don't see a happy ending at this point, given Putin's determination um, to carry this through, given his unwillingness to, to have a ceasefire in those talks. I, and I don't see the Ukrainian people just laying down. I think it's, it's not going to be good for a long, long time. So you think this is going to be a Vietnam and a city landscape? Could very well be. Um, I see it. I see the Ukrainian people not laying down and not giving up. And I see Putin not giving up. And that means a clash, you know, fighting 
assassinations, destruction for years, months, if not years. And I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. Do you think a a united show of force from other allies with tanks, guns, ammo, if they arrived on this situation, do you think that would change anything right now? You mean if we, if the United States and the European countries were to put boots on the ground? Yeah, right. I think Putin would go nuclear. Oh, you do? I do. Hmm. Why? Because I think he doesn't want to lose. He can't lose. I think he would risk nuclear war. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, on with that nice thought, wow. Uh, I guess I've just assumed that all world leaders have a level of uh, reasonableness to not use a nuclear bomb. But now that you say that, I'm like, ah, why would I put that on Putin? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm just frustrated by, by what's happened over there. I'm actually frustrated by people who think they're doing something by liking things on social media. You know, I'm, I'm, I am really inspired by people who are actually signing up to be part of the military conflict over there. That's happening. I, I think that's, I think that's amazing. I think us as Americans were just not in touch with what it means to do things. We know what it means to say things. We don't want, know what it means to do things. And I just keep wondering what would happen if a few weeks ago, just a few, a few tanks showed up on the border from from other countries and said, no, you're not going to come in here. But we just were talking about things instead of doing things. But you think even that a few weeks ago would have led to something nuclear? I think that's, there's a real possibility for that. I think, again, Putin wants to reestablish that Russian empire. And he feels that um, NATO on his border with Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland is a direct threat to his country. And he was bound and determined that Ukraine would not join NATO. He's bound and determined that Ukraine will not join the European Union. That he's bound and determined that Ukraine will be, like Belarus, a vassal state, subservient to Moscow, following Moscow's lead. Um, that's what he believes needs to happen. That's, that's his, his game plan. And if we don't stop him here in Ukraine, if he is successful in Ukraine, my concern, Brian, is that Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are next. Much smaller countries, much smaller population than Ukraine, but NATO members. So they could be next. And, it, and it, even if they aren't, the, the, the other concern is what's China going to do? You know, for, if the West doesn't stop him in Ukraine, China for years has claimed that Taiwan is an integral part of, of China and has said they will use force to recapture Taiwan. If we don't stand up in Ukraine... I think it's a green light for China to go after Taiwan because if, if the West, Western allies, United States, Australia, Japan, the European Union doesn't stop him or stand up to him in Ukraine, they're not going to do it for Taiwan. And then all bets are off. And why do you think NATO is not allowing the Ukraine just be part of NATO? Well, it's a long and complicated process to become part of NATO and to become part of the European Union. Ukraine is a, a relatively young country, 30 years. And so you have to get all kinds of things in line, like make sure there are, are adequate safeguards against corruption, make sure there are laws that guarantee um, ownership of property, you know, and, and the ownership of property is protected by law, that the court systems are 
up to grade, if you will. Um, and so it's a long process to become part of the European Union. Ukraine has always been interested in it, but they need to do some house cleaning. You know, they need to get their act in line before they can qualify for membership in the European Union um, and NATO. Um, you just don't knock on the door and say, hey, we want to be part of it. And they say, come on in. You know, the next day you're part of it. So it's a long, complicated process. And it, um, and I think part of, of the, the concern now in, in terms of NATO is if Ukraine becomes part of NATO – you know, then Russia is on its on its uh, western flank is surrounded by NATO countries, and they perceive that to be a threat. Mm. They perceive NATO to be uh, not a defensive alliance, but an alliance that will target Russia. Well, that's some things I hadn't thought about before because it it seems like yeah, just let them into NATO. What's the big deal? But if you haven't been trying to get your house in order and and you ha- aren't meeting standards like Ukraine has not been, that that makes a lot of sense. They're on the process. They're on the road to doing that. But as you know, it takes a long time to bring about a change. And if you've had, what, 70 years of a particular system and when they were part of the Soviet Union, it, don't, it, it does, just doesn't uh, change overnight with a flip of a switch, if you will. So they're on the way. They are committed to free and fair elections, a parliamentary democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of the assembly, all of those rights that we in the West enjoy. They're committed to a free market. Um, Take some time to get there. When you talk about rolling over and doing Lithuania, Latvia, modeling for China, going into Taiwan, I, I ping pong back and forth between two mindsets. I'd love you to help me out with and give me your opinion on. Because that's what you do on podcasts. We give our opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, I think, what in the world are we doing here? They, they don't need us to have social media campaigns. They need people to show up who will kill Russians. That's what they need. I, f- I feel like that on the one hand. It's called the Aggressive Life Podcast. I'm like, Gosh, if this is right and people are getting killed, other people need to go over and kill the bad people who are killing the innocent people. That's actually a biblically defensive argument. We'll get into some other podcasts maybe. Uh, so on, on one hand, I, 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 I feel that. And then on the other hand, I go, gosh, our country has just gotten burned all the time for being trying to be the world's policeman. And I have this element of me that says, maybe we need to go back to a little bit of old school isolationism and let those people on the other side of the ocean deal with their, their own problems and us stop running up our military debt and stop sending our soldiers to death in a conflict in a region of the world that is so far away from us. I don't know how to look at this one between either of those perspectives. What's your opinion? You asked the good questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's tough to ask America to put boots on the ground after 20 years in Afghanistan, after Iraq, and going back as far as Vietnam. That's a tough ask. On the other hand, what country is better positioned to speak for and be the leader for democracy with a small d? Who will stand up? Who will be the beacon of light for the rights of people 
to speak freely, freedom of the press, assembly, freedom of speech, all those rights that, that are enshrined in our Constitution. Who better to do that? France, Germany, United Kingdom, Japan, Australia? Probably not. Probably not. Why not? Why not? Why not for they don't have Germany? The, they, they can stand up and do it, but they don't have the resources that we have. And in Germany, they don't have the tradition that we have. And so maybe the best way— What do you mean the tradition? This is, this is deep. I don't want to miss it. What do you mean Germany doesn't have World the tradition? World War II. They don't have the tradition of winning that we do? What do you no, mean? No, tradition of— uh, Oh, of being for the underdog. Right. Being for the, being for the oppressed because right. they were actually the oppressor. Got it. Right. So— if we can, through economic sanctions, diplomatic sanctions, if we can send the message to Russia that you are not a welcome member in the family of nations, your athletes cannot participate in the Olympics, you will not, we will not hold soccer championship games there, you cannot connect to the financial system in the West, the banking system, your reserves are going to be confiscated, if you will, because of your violation of international law. And so one of the questions is, what is the role of international law? Do we follow it? Now, I'd love to say America's record is 100% clean on that, but that's a whole other story and that's a whole other podcast. Right here, right now, Russia has violated international law, the, the territorial integrity of a sovereign free nation. I don't think we can let that pass. And so whatever we can do in terms of economic sanctions to put pressure and inflict pain, if you will, on, on folks um, to get them to change, to stop, to pull back, to recognize the role of international law, respecting the sovereign and, uh, and territorial integrity of countries, I think that's what we can do and, and be the leader in that. So whether you voted for President Biden or not, now's not the time for partisan politics. Now is the time for America to stand up for the rule of law, to stand up for human rights, to stand up for freedom and democracy, and to lead the allies. Without us, it, the international coalition, I think, is not as effective. If we've become isolationist, it's to our own peril. And, and now, Brian, it's... it's I believe, though I'm not an expert in economics and, and all that stuff, that it's impossible because of the global economy. We are so connected to our brothers and sisters around the world, economically, you know, in so many different ways. If we were to go isolationist, it would not serve America well. If we want to maintain a standard of living, you know, if we want to have, uh, well, all the stuff that goes with a booming economy. We are connected to the entire world. And we then, I think, have a responsibility. To whom much has been given, much is expected. We have been given a lot in natural resources, in location with oceans on either side, and a tradition of democracy and free and fair elections. We have been given a lot. And for us to turn our back on the world... Man, I don't want to be standing on Judgment Day when whoever made that decision has to ask, has to, you know, respond to what the Lord's going to say. Where were you when they did this to the least of my brothers? We have a responsibility. It's very clear. What you do unto others, you do unto me. When I was hungry, 
you fed me. When I was homeless, you sheltered me. When I was naked, you clothed me. There is no greater imperative for us to stand with the people of Ukraine and help them in any way possible and to be the leader of the free world. We didn't ask for it, but it's ours. You know, sometimes things fall in your lap and you got to pick it up. You got to do it. You can't stand by and say, not my problem. It is our problem because we are brothers and sisters with everyone. And with the Russian people who are demonstrating against this war, the Russian people in Moscow and St. Petersburg who are thrown in jail because they marched down the street and said no to this war. We are connected to them. Yeah, but uh, yes, period. That's really good, Bob. Thank you. I got the right. I got the right guest on the right podcast at the right time. This is this is fantastic. I don't. I don't think anyone would disagree that economic sanctions. We could stand together and do that with Russia. But is there is there any evidence that says that Putin cares at all? how we hurt the average person in Russia economically, because it's not going to hurt him. Good question, Brian. And then maybe Putin doesn't care about the average Russian. And maybe because he doesn't care, the pressure will build and there will be more demonstrations. But I suspect Putin does care about what happens to his buddies, the oligarchs, right. the people that support him. So, you know, the, the Russian oligarch that owns the soccer team in Britain, put it up for sale. The Russian oligarch that owns this super yacht which is in the Mediterranean, that the yacht's been seized by France. And so uh, I suspect that as the oligarchs— so his peers are probably giving him pressure because he has some relative peers. So, yeah, as the pressure mounts on the oligarchs and they lose their real estate holdings or their whatever in Britain and London and their bank accounts, and you know, the Swiss have frozen the bank accounts. They lose the access to their money in Switzerland that's stashed abroad. As the pressure mounts on the oligarchs, maybe that's the way into Putin— but that's going to take more than a day or a week or a month. And in the meantime, the people in Ukraine are going to suffer big time. So Sen maybe best case scenario is an oligarch figures out a way to assassinate Putin in the next week. It's an interesting thought. <laughs> I'm sure sometimes <laughs> many violence, people have had it. Sometimes violence is the answer. I mean, I, I know that we're, we're believers and we we believe that we believe in turning the other cheek for sure. And there's a history of some great people trying to do some violent things in the name of Christ, which I believe was the name of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer tried to take out Hitler, a German German pastor during World War II. Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to be going over to Germany this next fall to to visit some significant sites. Um, and I, I, it's, I hadn't really count the costs on the oligarchy and the pressure from his relative peers in that area. That's interesting. So then the unknown is if Putin is assassinated, who takes over? And will he, that person maintain that course or see the light, if you will, and, and change course? Um, it's a good question. Don't have the answer to that. Don't know. You know, and and just for us at the Cincinnati Harkeep Sister City Partnership, the future, Brian, is a, is a big question mark. Will the government of Harkeep, the city government with whom we work, 
be a puppet government of the Russians and will we be able to work with them? Will it be possible? Will the people who were freely and fairly elected, Mayor, Mayor Terikov, who was here in Cincinnati in, 19, 19, in 2017 and signed a five-year memorandum of understanding with John Cranley as mayor, uh, Igor Terikov from Kharkiv, Irina Bakamenko, who is the president of the Kharkiv Cincinnati Sister City Partnership, our companion over, organization over there, and we, we signed a five-year memorandum of understanding outlining, outlining the projects we were going to work on for the next five years. That, that memorandum expires this year. And there's ever, there was and there is every intention to renew it and, and include new initiatives. But will it be possible? And who do we sign with? A puppet government in Kharkiv? Would they be interested? Will they, the Kharkiv-Cincinnati Sister City Partnership, the folks over in Kharkiv, be allowed to continue as an NGO if Russia does, in fact, control the country. So there are a lot of unknowns um, for us as a as CKSCP. What's, what's the future going to hold? Who are we going to work with? So what we've been doing as, as our position has been we're going to hold back on, on financial aid. Tons, you know, encourage people to, to send money, donations, whatever, because there's a lot of organizations that are helping Ukraine. Our focus is on Kharkiv. We want whatever funds we're able to raise to go directly to the people in Kharkiv to rebuild their homes, to rebuild their businesses, to use the funds in whatever way they, they can. Um, but we don't have a way yet, we don't know of a way yet to safely transfer those funds, that they will get to the intended people. The situation is too fluid. We have to wait until things settle down and see what's in place and then go on to an aggressive fundraising program to directly help our friends in Kharkiv. But we have to have a way. We have to be guaranteed that we can transmit the funds, you know, that they'll, they'll get there. They won't be siphoned off into right. somebody's pocket or there'll be a 90% commission or, or whatever. So the situation is very fluid. We're watching it. We hope it settles down. And then we can support those people who've been here in Cincinnati, who've hosted Cincinnatians in their homes, who've collaborated on a number of projects. So there's, there's one thing happening right now as we speak. The background to this is kids' art. Kids are great artists, elementary school kids. And so Marymount Elementary, right here in greater Cincinnati, collaborated with an art teacher in Ukraine and over the last four years have done international exhibit of children's art. So the way it works is the Ukrainian kids' art is shipped here to Cincinnati. And in October, at the barn in Marymount, there's an exhibit of Ukrainian kids' art and Marymount kids' art. Okay. And it's on a theme. One year it was uh, holidays. One year it was the Four Seasons. One year it was transportation, so on and so forth. Then after the first of the year, after the exhibit closes at the barn in Marymount, that art is shipped to Kharkiv and is on display in a museum in Kharkiv. The Marymount Kids art is there right now. I don't know if that museum is still standing. I don't know if that museum has been bombed. I suspect the Marymount kids will not get their art back. Those kids in Marymount schools are currently in a pen pal program with kids in Kharkiv. I don't know that that's going to continue. I don't know how it can. We just hope. So, and then there are kids in Wyoming. Wyoming High School hosted delegations of teenagers from Kharkiv prior to the pandemic. Three groups came over three different years. 
Some are keeping in touch, trying to keep in touch with the kids they hosted. So there's a direct impact in Marymount and Wyoming and the kids at Nativity School in Pleasant Ridge that hosted delegations in the 90s and the 2000s. Now, one of them I just heard from the other day as still keeping in touch with the student she hosted back in, I think it was 2007. So the impact here in Cincinnati is on a lot of people and a lot of kids and a lot of families. We want the situation to stabilize, find out if we can transfer funds, find out what the people in Kharkiv need, and then CKSCP is going to go into motion and do what we can. The world has really shrunk, hasn't it? It has. It has. And so we can't turn our back on it. We can't become isolationists. We are connected, whether it's through kids' art or through business or travel, whatever it is, we are connected. And as Christians, we have a responsibility. Let's go back to something you said earlier. I'm still trying to work my way through this mentally and spiritually. You mentioned that Germany, England, France, they basically don't have the moral authority to enter into situations of oppression like this. Is that what you were saying? No, I don't think they have, it's not moral authority. I don't think they have the resources. I don't think they're looked up to around the world like the United States is looked up to. Um, it's, it's not moral resources. Okay. It's, it's political clout, if you will. It's their weight on the world stage. Um, their era was the early 20th century. It's, Mer- it's America's turn after, after World War II. France, Germany, Britain, they had their time on the world stage as, as world leaders. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it's been our turn. And it's our responsibility, I believe. Yeah, I guess I I think less of our country than it actually is. Maybe it's because I'm just in a country that's continually cynical about everything, including our own country's power, because, you know, the national debt keeps going up, 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 up. The national health statistics keep going down, 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 down. Our polarization and being at war with one another goes up, 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 up. Our our spiritual wholeness and vitality and happiness keeps going down, 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 down. Our, it just seems like everything that's negative seems to be going up and everything that's positive seems to be going down. And so I think, well, how, how, how are we qualified here? But you're pushing on that a little bit, saying, well, we're, we're probably better off than we think that we are, or at least better off than others, because other people are more losers than us. You know, Brian, I agree with you that we're polarized in ways we haven't been in my lifetime. But, you know, my, my formative experience, because I'm older than dirt, my formative experience— You're older than dirt or you're older than dirt over here? <laughs> you're definitely older than dirt here. That's his name, you know, dirt. Just look at him. That's a dirty man right there. My formative experience <laughs> was January 1961 when President Kennedy said, Ask not— what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We've lost that. Yes. We have lost that. We've got to come back together. We've got to heal the polarization in this country. We have to take care. And does that mean big government? I'm not sure what, I'm not sure how, 
but I do know we have to take care of all those people in the Rust Belt cities that have lost their jobs. We have to take care of all the people that are addicted to opioids. We have to find a way to enable Americans to have meaningful income and a safe place to raise their kids and have meaningful employment. We have to do that to bring this country back together. So that should be a bipartisan approach. That shouldn't be red versus blue, blue versus red. We have to find fair tax policies. We have to find fair ways to ensure that everybody has a seat at the table. And I think that's the frustration in our country right now because not everybody believes they have a seat at the table. Right. People believe that they aren't even allowed in the room, much right. less to sit at the table. Right. So how do we as a country and how do we as people of faith ensure that everybody has a seat at the table? Those are tough tough negotiations, if you will, tough conversations to have because we each bring to it our own particular history, the time we were denied or the time that person was given an advantage. We bring all of that to the table. We need to, we need to pull together. It is cool about this situation that at least it's one thing all America agrees on. You know, we don't necessarily agree on what should happen next, but we all are like, that's awful, that's ridiculous, that's bad. It's been a while since America has agreed on something. You're right. You and, I, and I wish, Brian, that it were 100% agreement or even 99 or even 98. But there's a candidate running in the primary for the Ohio Senate seat who says we have should completely ignore Ukraine, have nothing to do with them. Not all of, the, of our politicians are on board. Majority, definitely. Bipartisan, definitely. But when— But that I, person wouldn't say it's okay for Russia to do this. They may be disagreeing about whether or not we should deploy resources, but are they actually saying it doesn't matter what Putin does? Uh, well, if, if they don't want us to be involved, I think that's a way of saying it doesn't matter what Putin does. You know, and, and to heckle the president at the State of the Union address, this is when we're supposed to come together. We can have reasonable disagreements, but to turn your back and heckle the guy? What, what the, pardon my French, what the hell is that all about? In this moment of we're supposed to— You can't say that to, word in your aggressive life, Bob. <laughs> Sorry. You cannot say H. I prefer if you just said H-E double toothpick. Tooth yes. What the H-E double toothpick <laughs> is that all about? <laughs> you know— we obviously we we have reasonable disagreements and differences on on approaches. That's America. That's life. That's that's the the joy, if you will, of the discussion, the fight, the negotiations. But let's treat each other civilly and let's respect each other. Bob, this has been really good and really helpful. I'm going to take us light to end us because we had some heavy stuff here, which if you're going to talk about this, it's going to be heavy, right? Yeah, it needs to be yeah, heavy. Yeah. We had this to dig under some things and hear some things we might not have heard in other places, and you've, you've delivered on that. Great. I've also been moved by things that you've said which have brought a bit of humanity to this, and I think our lightning round might help us out with that. So lightning round is I say something, and you have to answer in one or two sentences. Okay which I would love for you to answer much longer because everything you said has been brilliant today, Bob. Really, really well. Here we go. Are you ready for the lightning round? Yes, I am. All right, here we here go. We go. Your favorite thing about the Ukrainian people? Hospitality. Unbelievable. Your favorite food in the Ukraine? 
There's a tradition of toasts when you get together for a meal. And uh, though that's not a food, the, the raising of the glass and the making of the toast is priceless. It's oh. wonderful. Go ahead. I'll let you go outside the lightning round parameters. What's, how does a toast look different in the Ukraine than it does in the United States? Well, you put the, uh, the glass on your hand, okay, and then you uh, lift your hand up and you, tr- and you drink it, and then you throw the glass up in the air and you catch it. Huh. So whether it's orange juice or... Oh, orange juice, of course, of course. The Catholic guy's only having orange juice over there, of course. Yes, right, right, right. You don't have to, you don't have to cover your base here, Bob. <laughs> but you put the glass on your hand, you tilt it up, you down it, and you throw the glass up in the air, and if you're lucky, you catch it. Oh, uh, that's cool. That's so, great. And it's just a ton of fun. That's just great. Fr- favorite place to visit in Ukraine? Oh, there's the monument to the heroes of World War II. There is in, in a park just outside of Kharkiv. It's like a forest. Imagine Mount Airy Forest. And you, you go in there, and then there's a path through the forest. And on the side, there are um, lights underneath benches that, that glow red. And you hear through the speaker system like a heartbeat. Okay? So it's the heartbeat of the people, and you walk down this path, and at the end is this humongous statue of Mother Russia. And so it's dedicated to all the people who fought for Mother Russia in World War II. So Kharkiv was occupied by the Nazis, liberated, occupied again, and liberated again. Four battles fought for that city in World War II. Incredible loss of life, incredible destruction. And here is this monument with a beating heart to the folks who fought for Kharkiv and defended the city. One story I feel going off the lightning round here for a moment. One story I, f- I feel hasn't gotten enough play, or at least I'm more interested about it than is being reported on it, is how the Ukrainian governments gave up all their nuclear missiles however many years ago. You know, the, the Russians, when it was under the Soviet bloc authority, had missile bases there and all that stuff. And then when that broke down, all those things were left behind. And and the Ukraine decided to just get rid of them in the hope of, what, international appeasement? Well, what? a guarantee of independence that they would be free and fair is my understanding. They gave them up. We don't need to be a nuclear power. We want to be a free country without all that. Oh, that's okay. my understanding. And so that's that's how Russia was okay with that. Yeah. Right? Oh, okay. Time, yeah. All right, because yeah. I when I read it, it was like they gave them up, and they didn't even have to give them up. That's not they didn't. They didn't have to, but they did it in exchange for guarantees of freedom. And now they don't have any. All right, awful. All right, what about if I want to find out about this conflict? Have you found that there's any sources of news that are really good for this? Which is in and of itself, there's, there's no question I can ask in today's climate without being polarizing. Because if you say this place, people on the right are going to think you're, you're a lackey or on the left, they're going to think you're not enlightened or whatever it is. I'm not trying to ask a loaded question. Just as you've read about this, are, are there any news sources that you think, hey, this one seems to be getting it right? New York Times is, is one of my go-tos. And, and in particular, the, the essays, the columnists, the, the, the opinion pieces about what's happening there, in, in sense, along with the straight reporting. I think the New York Times is a good source. Because that matches up with what you've experienced when right. you've actually been there. Right. Okay, right. good. Biggest lesson you think that we are learning from this conflict? 
Well, I, I think in a sense, learning it again is that we are all connected. We are brothers and sisters that share this small, fragile planet. And by God, we have to, we have to get it right. Bob, is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about last moment of time is whatever is on your mind. Anything we should have dug into that we haven't dug into? Oh, good question, Brian. Or that would just be, or that would just be fun for you to talk about. Um, the good times I've had when I've been there, the good times that we've had when people have come here to Cincinnati, the Harkivites, um, the positive relationships, so the times we've laughed and danced and celebrated. Um, yeah, the, those are legend uh, many times. Um, and it's, it, it's hard to remember those at, at, a point, at a time like this. Bob, do you have a website or social media account or anything else where people can follow up and hear what you're thinking about things, or is that just not you? Well, uh, because I'm older than dirt, <laughs> I don't have a Twitter account. I don't do much on Facebook, but there is a, a website for the Cincinnati Harkey Sister City Partnership. It's uh, org, And we've been posting some um, stuff up there. Uh, it's really... Uh, now kind of superseded with events have moved so fast. Um, one of the other things that uh, that I personally am doing is when I get reports from Harkiv, just sending it out to folks who are interested in, in receiving or um, firsthand accounts of the people in Ukraine that are communicating with us. And I'd be glad to add anybody to that, that email list. If you just email me at Robert C as in Charles, Robert C Herring, at gmail.com, we'll put you on the email list and you'll get the updates as, as they go out. We were doing them every day, sometimes twice a day, but it's, again, it's it's just diminished because of the conditions in Kharkiv now that under attack, we haven't had much. So you them. and your email can be our trusted source of news. Glad to be part of it. Glad to be, to share the information. Glad to be part of the solution. You know, Brian, when I was a kid, my parents said to me, son, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So get off your ass and get to work. That's where we are. If we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. There's lots of ways to help. Figure out which way you can make your contribution because what you do to the least of my brothers, you do to me. Time to get off our ass and get to work. Sorry about that. Amen. You are apologizing (laughs) again. Bob, stop saying (laughs) hell and ass. Gosh, what the hell are you doing that for? You're such an ass, Bob. You can't be doing that. <laughs> no. Oh man, this has been this has been rich. Uh, I, I, I walked into this room cold, not cold. I knew I was with you today, and I I knew some of your work, but I, I've never met you personally. Didn't know really much about you, and uh, boy, this has been a great hour spent with me. I'm I'm really encouraged, Bob. There's people like you that are building strong relationships with other human beings and are following your God wholeheartedly and challenging us and doing whatever you can do that God puts in your way. Uh, I'm a richer man because of our presence today, Bob. Thank you very, very much. You're welcome, Brian. Thanks for the opportunity to have been here. I appreciate it very much. Well, Bob gave you some info about how to hear from him, how to follow up his organization. There's very few aggressive people out in the world that are blessing people. That's Bob. And that's what the aggressive life is about. Aggressive life is not about, hey, let's figure out how to err on the side of aggressively shooting people over in Russia. 
it's not what the aggressive life's about. It's about taking advantage of any situation in front of you and pushing forward like Bob has with the people of Kharkiv. So take these, apply it to your life, and let's pray and let's work towards a better life for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.